1981, Kelvin Cochran became one of the first black firefighters in Shreveport, Louisiana. 18 years later, he became the first black fire chief of that fire department. He went on to become the fire chief then of Atlanta. He had persevered through racial discrimination. He made quite a career for himself. But that career abruptly ended on January 6, 2015, when he was fired from Atlanta by the city mayor, Kasim Reed. And what ended his career? It wasn't racial discrimination that got him, but religious discrimination. As a Christian, Cochran wrote a book on his own time titled, Who Told You That You Were Naked? It's biblical Reflections on Manhood. And within the book, a few pages were devoted to upholding the traditional Christian view of marriage between one man and one woman, and all sexual relations outside of marriage to be against God's will, including homosexuality. But after learning of the book, Mayor Reed promptly had Cochran suspended and then fired, claiming Cochran's religious beliefs weren't the issue, but the city's non-discrimination policy. The mayor went on to say that the views in Cochran's book were not consistent with the city's discrimination policy. However, no actual discrimination had occurred. Not a single person complained or accused him of any actual discrimination. In fact, he had successfully ran a very large and diverse workforce. In reality, Cochran wasn't fired for discrimination, but simply for what he believed. And just think about that, his views. The great irony, of course, is that the mayor fired Cochran, setting the need to tolerate diverse views. But of course, he had no concern with tolerating Cochran's diverse religious views. So in reality, this firing had nothing to do with Cochran's discrimination, but rather the mayor's discrimination against Cochran's Christian beliefs. Simple as that. It's just another example of the amazing intolerance of the tolerance movement. Cochran now joins the other florists, bakers, and photographers who have lost their jobs because of religious discrimination. It's real. It's happening. And it's only just beginning. Al Mohler, president of Southern Seminary, has described this as a clashing of liberties. He calls it religious liberty versus what he titles erotic liberty, a way to describe this very new sexuality-based liberty spreading throughout the country. And more and more likely, it, it doesn't seem that these two liberties will be able to coexist. And since the sexual libertarians have proven to function like a mafia, firing, shaming, or prosecuting anyone who opposes them, it seems just a matter of time before religious liberty is trampled on. Now, thankfully, it's not as bad as it could be yet. And as a side note, Cochran is filing a wrongful termination lawsuit against Atlanta right now. So pray for that. But times are changing. It's like witnessing the slow turn from high tide to low tide. The surf used to seem strong, but at some point an imperceptible shift takes place and now the water level is, is slowly dropping. It's not noticeable at first, but a little bit more it drops. Then you see all the boats anchored switch their position. It's actually one way to tell the direction of the tide. When tide is coming in, all the anchored boats face outward to sea, away from their anchors. But as tide goes out, all the boats will flip and face toward the land. Over time, the changing tide becomes obvious, though, and it leaves just one question left. How low will it go? And the moral tide of America is changing. At least when it comes to sexuality, for the past 50 years, the tide has been weakening. But of late, a clear shift has taken place. The water level is dropping. Just about every politician opposed gay marriage, for example, 10 to 15 years ago, including Mayor Kasim Reed, 
who fired Cochran, he was opposed to gay marriage just back in 2009. But like the anchored boats with the tide, so many now have reversed position. The morality of our nation and the world is changing, and there's just one question left for us, and that is how low will it go? But this changing tide presents a conflict for Christians because we refuse to get swept out to sea. Though the tide has receded, we cling to the rock of God's word, now exposed out of the water, and being so exposed and drawing the contempt of those who just want to go with the flow. The Christian experience in America will now come with something it has never come with before, and that is fear. Now it is Christians who must fear discrimination, losing their jobs, and the future, perhaps much more, simply because of their faith. This fear can be a good thing, For through it, God will refine and purify his people. He will force the faithful to cling tighter to the rock of Christ. And he will separate the wheat from the chaff. Speaking of, some so-called Christians are ready to wave the white flag immediately and embrace the new sexual ethic, just ignoring those parts of the Bible. But the Bible is a package deal. The good news of Jesus Christ, it's not good news if all of this book isn't true. It's either from God or not. And if it is from God, it's authoritative, it's binding. You can't pick and choose, though some try. For those who will not compromise, though, the question is, how do we respond? How do you respond to a a changing culture and a, a new sexual ethic that villainizes the Christian faith, such that now we're the intolerant ones and we're the bigots? How are Christians to live in such an environment of fear? Well, amazingly... The passage we have this morning in Mark 15 speaks to that. Not in the way you might think, but it's, it's helpful nonetheless. We have a passage today you probably haven't paid much attention to, but it's become all the more relevant once again. So take your Bibles, open them to Mark chapter 15. We actually come to finish Mark 15 today. Mark, it's, the, it's a fast-paced action gospel, and we've been moving at a steady pace throughout. But Mark really slows things down near the cross, and we have done so likewise. We spent many weeks, many months studying the death of Jesus and its impact, but that's, that's done. Mark 15:37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. So we have been through studying his time on the cross and the immediate impact it had. This final passage in Mark 15, though, talks about the responses to that death. How did people respond to Christ's death? Well, in typical fashion, Mark records the varied response, some good, some bad. And studying such responses is remarkably instructive for our own day because these are still the responses we have to choose from. What we find here is like a survey of how Christians can respond to the cross of Christ, which is still a message of foolishness and contempt to the world. But what makes these responses so much more valuable today is that they all took place in an atmosphere of fear. Those who followed Jesus had good reason to fear for their own lives. Back then, following Jesus might meant your own death and demise. Jesus seems to have lost the day. This is after the cross, before the resurrection. They don't know. He seems to have lost. And now the thought runs through their mind. If I stand for Jesus... What will happen to me? And that is the same question many Christians are facing today. If I take a stand for Jesus, what will happen to me? But by studying these responses, we find some guidance for our own day. 
that's what we want to do this morning. We'll make our way through Mark 15, verses 40 through 47. Looking at the different responses, the different immediate responses to the death of Christ so that we might learn how to stand for Jesus in our own day. And we begin with number one, the response of commitment. The response of commitment. This comes from the women at the cross. The response of commitment. Look at verse 40 to begin. After Jesus died, it says, There were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Less and Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. This is the first we hear of these women by the cross in Mark. So we could start with their identity. Who were they? We've got Mary Magdalene. She's very well known. Everyone knows that name. Magdalene's not her last name, though. It's her hometown. She's known by her hometown on the western shore of Galilee. This was included to distinguish her because Mary was just an ubiquitous name back then. It's like everyone's named Mary. So there's so many Marys in the Bible, it's hard to keep track. We don't know much else about her. All we've got is Luke 8, 2, which says Jesus delivered her from seven demons, after which she started to follow him, follow him around. We don't see or hear of her again, though, until this moment at the cross. Next on the list comes Mary, the mother of James, the Less, and Joseph. I told you, there's a lot of Marys to keep track of. So here's another Mary. This Mary is identified by her children. Speaking of Mary being a common name, James was a very common name back then as well. Jesus had a brother named James. There were also two Jameses among his 12 disciples. And this James is one of them. James the Less is also James, son of Alphaeus, in Matthew 10.3. Mark calls him James the Less to distinguish him from the other James among the 12, who was much more prominent. He was in Christ's inner circle, you know, James and John and Peter. So as this James, though, as he left everything to follow Jesus, we figure that his mother did so as well. She tagged along with him. And either way, though, she's here now at the cross, still there, watching Christ die. Finally, Mark lists a woman named Salome. According to the parallel verse in Matthew's gospel, Salome was the mother of the sons of Zebedee, James and John. That means, obviously, she's the wife of Zebedee. Jesus made quite an impact on that family. In fact, I'll tell you something pretty cool. We can't be 100% certain about this, but if you compare the lists of these women standing by the cross in Matthew, Mark, and John, and if they all refer to the same women, then it means that Salome, the mother of James and John, was also the aunt of Jesus. We get this from John 19.25, where John calls this woman Christ's mother's sister. So, her and his aunt. Now again, you have to assume these lists are referring to the same three women, not counting Mary, the mother of Jesus. So we can't be dogmatic here, but if these lists overlap, and they seem like they do, then Salome was Mary's sister. That means Jesus was her nephew. That also means, you know, the apostles James and John, they were cousins of Jesus. Now if that's true, it helps explain the special connection Jesus had with James and John. He makes them two-thirds of his inner circle. Now, speaking of John's gospel, he does mention a fourth woman standing by the cross, and that is Mary, the mother of Jesus. She was there. Imagine that, watching her son die on the cross, rejected by just about everyone. On the cross, though, Jesus had the wherewithal to entrust the care of Mary, his mother, into the hands of John, the apostle John. Most likely, John then took Mary home so that she wouldn't have to witness any more. 
That's why, most likely, Matthew and Mark don't list Mary at the cross, because she probably left by the time that ensued. She was there at the beginning, not at the end. If, by the way, James and John really were the cousins of Jesus, again, that would explain why he gives the care of his mother to John, because Mary was the aunt of John, if that's true. So anyway, these are the women standing by the cross. And although we haven't heard much of them before, verse 41 tells us they used to follow Jesus around and minister to him. So they were there. They weren't recorded, but they were there. Throughout his Galilean ministry, they were behind the scenes serving the Lord. That's what Luke says, Luke 8, 1 through 3. Sometime during Christ's second year of ministry, he was traveling Galilee with the twelve. He delivered Mary Magdalene and some other women from affliction. They started to follow him and just minister to him and the disciples from their own means. It even says of these women, quote, they were contributing to their support out of their private means, end quote. It means that these women, they were actually financing Christ's ministry, his full-time ministry. Jesus was an itinerant rabbi, and he relied on the hospitality and the generosity of others. So as these women came to believe in him, it became their joy to, to serve him, to serve him however way they could. And for them that were wealthy, that included giving. They gave of their means to keep Jesus and the disciples going on the road. This became an ongoing thing. The verb in Luke says it was a habitual practice. They just continued, they traveled, they supported, they gave, and it was their joy to do so. And here they are. John tells us they followed Jesus to Jerusalem, not fully understanding what would happen. But when it all went down, Jesus dies on the cross. Where are they? They're still here that they're still here by his side watching him on the cross. And through this, they model the response of commitment. At this point, they're, they're scared. They're confused. They're discouraged. They're still not playing with a full deck of cards, so they don't understand the reality of the resurrection yet. They, they don't get that yet. So to them, it looks like Jesus is losing, and with him, their messianic hopes. But even still, they stick around. Now think about that. You're meant to see the contrast here with the other 11 disciples. Because where are they? They're gone. They fled. They ran away. But the women have persevered and they model commitment, real commitment to the Lord. And for this, they will be rewarded by being the first to witness the risen Lord. It's the women who see him first. Even against all odds, even when they didn't understand God's plan, they did not know what was happening, but they stood by. They just, they stood by. That's the type of commitment God wants from his disciples. Even if you don't have it all figured out, you stand by. And being there, just by being by the cross, were they not bearing some of his shame and feeling some of his scorn? It felt to them like everyone had gathered to hate Jesus, to kill Jesus, to gloat in his death. But they still didn't flee. They, they stuck around. They stand with him. And they serve as perfect examples of those who don't have all the answers. You don't understand God's specific plan, but you stand by Christ. Though in the valley of the shadow of death, they're still standing firm. So learn from these women the first response, the response of commitment. And today, you might look at the gospel message, the cross of Christ. And it feels like it's losing. It's not working more and more, or turning against the Lord. They're hating the Lord all over again. It's evoking scorn and ridicule again and mockery. The world is turning on Christians. 
And maybe you wonder, what is God's plan in all this? What's he doing? I I don't know. What's he doing? You can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. You don't see how things are going to work out. You don't see how things in America are going to turn around. You don't know. It seems like a losing battle, but do we flee? These women didn't have the answers. They did not know how God was going to work this out, their eyes being closed to the resurrection. But they had committed devotion to the Lord. So they simply stood with him in the darkest hour. And that's enough. The Lord calls on us to do the same. The cause of Christ may not always flourish on earth according to God's will, but you just stand firm. It's what God wants you to do. You just stand firm. You may not know how it's all going to work out, but you just stand firm. Hebrews 10.23, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The days may get darker and darker, but actually we we have the benefit of knowledge. We know that Christ's glory will win in the end. So against the backdrop of darkness, let your light shine brighter. All the more remain committed to him and follow this encouraging example of these faithful women by the cross of Christ. Responsive commitment. And secondly, take your responsive commitment and add it to next the response of courage. Secondly, the response of courage. And this comes from Joseph, a man named Joseph. Look at verse 42. When evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, and he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Like the woman, here's a a new character we've not seen before, but it's clear he had interacted with Jesus beforehand. It's just not in Mark's gospel. Verse 42 gives us the setting. Jesus died on the ninth hour, which for the Jews was 3 p.m. This marked the beginning of their first evening. Remember, their day ended at sundown. But it's still technically what they call the day of preparation, verse 42, the day before the Sabbath. The Jewish Sabbath, as you know, goes from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. The day before is called the day of preparation because on Sabbath you can't do any work. So the day before, you better better prepare all you need to prepare. Now speaking of this day of preparation, the Jews needed to do one thing. Specifically, they needed to take care of all their dead bodies. They needed to bury their dead. Specifically, Deuteronomy 21-23 says, That for those who are executed and hung on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. And as we learn in John 19, the religious leaders, they had no concern breaking God's law in their unjust trial and execution of Jesus, but they were very concerned with keeping this law. We better bury him on the same day. They didn't want three dead bodies hanging on the cross come their Passover Sabbath. So in John 19, that's where we learn they ask Pilate to break the legs of the guys on the crosses to speed up their death by asphyxiation so that their bodies could be disposed of before sundown. But you know how it goes. When they came to Jesus, he was already dead. That's when they confirmed it by thrusting the spear in his side. This all happened shortly after 3 p.m. And now the clock was ticking because they had to get these bodies down and into a grave before sundown. 
After the other two men died, the Romans would have disposed their bodies in a common grave. This probably meant just being tossed into Gehenna, which was the flaming trash heap outside of Jerusalem, which Jesus used to picture hell. But this is where Joseph comes in, because he just, he just couldn't stand the body of Jesus being discarded in such a fashion. Who was this man? Joseph of Arimathea, he's from Arimathea, a city lost in time, don't know about it. He was wealthy, Matthew calls him a rich man. However, he had become a permanent resident in Jerusalem. We know this because later we find he had bought his own tomb in Jerusalem. He planned to live there, he planned to die there. This makes sense also because verse 43 says he was a prominent member of the council. What council? Well, it's talking about none other than the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the ruling religious body of the Jews, consisting of 71 members. And you might recall, though, hey, wasn't it the Sanhedrin led by the chief priest that tried and executed Jesus? Yes. But thankfully, Luke 23, 51 tells us Joseph did not consent to their plan and to their action. He played no part in the trial and the death of Jesus. Why not? Well, Luke tells us because he was a good and righteous man, he wanted to do what was right. And clearly Jesus was innocent of any wrongdoing. Furthermore, Mark and Luke tell us he was waiting for the kingdom. Was that verse 43? He was waiting for the kingdom of God. He was a devout Jew, studied in the scriptures, looking for the Messiah and God's kingdom. And so would it surprise you to learn that Joseph had become a believer? Matthew 27, verse 57 says, Joseph himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. But, but John's gospel tells us this. He became a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews. Most of the other members of the Sanhedrin hated Jesus and would stop at nothing to see him dead and gone because Jesus spelt the end of their prestige and power over the people. And so for Joseph to come out in support of Jesus would have meant the end of his career in the Sanhedrin. There's no way he would have stuck around. They would have kicked him out. So he kept his faith in Christ under wraps until now. Until now. Joseph had come to truly believe in Jesus as the Messiah. But now his fellow Jews had just succeeded in killing Jesus. So now what? We don't know what's running through his mind, but upon learning that the body of Jesus would be discarded in a trash heap, he felt enough was enough. The least he could do for Jesus, whom he loved, was to take a stand in this final hour and and care for his lifeless body. It was time for courage. And Joseph provides for us one of the most courageous examples of faith in the entire early church. I want you to think about this. Joseph responded to the cross of Christ with courage. How so? Think about his risk versus reward. Risk and reward. What was his reward? Nothing. He had nothing to gain. Jesus was dead. So from their limited perspective, it's all over. It's over. Their messianic hopes just died with Jesus. To care for the body of Jesus at this point gained him nothing. It's not like Jesus had an inheritance he could poach. There is nothing in this for him. His motivation was simply devotion to his master. Whatever faith he had left, 
even even though circumstances made that faith look foolish. So verse 43 says, He gathered up courage and requested the body of Jesus from Pilate to to dare, to show boldness, to be audacious. For him to go before Pilate and to make such a request was, was daring, was risky. What was he risking? Well, first, before Pilate, he was risking life and limb. Pilate was not happy with the Sanhedrin. They had just forced his hand. So it's not likely he was going to do a Sanhedrin member any favors. Furthermore, Joseph's desire to care for the body of Jesus could be looked upon as treason for sympathizing with an executed rebel and criminal of the state. The Romans were known to deal very harshly with those who sympathized with the guilty, uh, those guilty of sedition. So going before Pilate came with a real risk for his own life. Joseph also risked his career in the Sanhedrin. By requesting the body of Jesus to give it a proper burial, he was letting the cat out of the bag. That's it. You can't hide it anymore. He loved Jesus. They already knew he opposed their plan of action. Now he's making it clear. He was on Christ's side, even in death. He had believed in him. But that spelt certain doom for his tenure in the Sanhedrin. As you know, the religious leaders, they are vehemently pursuing and prosecuting anybody who claimed Jesus was the Messiah. And they were punishing them by excommunicating them from the synagogues, making them a total social outcast. I mean, it was for that reason Joseph kept a lid on his faith up until that point. But now it's out. And although we don't know for sure what happened to Joseph after this point, it's not hard to say with almost certainty he was done in the Sanhedrin after this. This had to have spelled the end of his career, and with it, power, prestige, wealth. Finally, we should point out that Joseph, by taking the body of Jesus, he was making himself ceremonially unclean. So he was forfeiting, observing that Sabbath, and even more importantly, that Passover. That was a big deal to the Jews, to miss the annual Passover. But Joseph knowingly and willingly forsook that to care for Jesus. So put it all together, he is risking and giving up a lot to gain nothing, simply courage and devotion to his lifeless master. And furthermore, remember, this came at a time when all hope seemed lost, but it's in that hour of desperation that he found the courage to do what was right. It was the right thing to do, to stand for Jesus, to serve him after all those days of silence. Maybe he should have spoke up earlier, he thought, surely. But now this is the right thing to do. So he stood And in this, Joseph models for us the response of courage that we all so desperately need. We too are starting to live in a hostile environment, in an atmosphere of fear. We don't fear being put out of the synagogue, but those who hate Christ want to similarly ruin the lives of those who love him once again. Joseph most likely lost his career for Jesus. That fear has already surfaced. Would you? Would you lose your career for your faith in Jesus? Your wealth, your income, your livelihood, your property, your life? Again, that question runs through your mind. What will happen to me if I stand for Jesus? There's fear in that question. That's why courage is needed. Like the Lord said to Moses and Joshua, 
Be strong and courageous. And consider your love. You know, what do you love more? The Lord or your own life? If you love your own life more, then you will only a matter of time before you buckle under fear to preserve yourself and everything that goes with it. But if you love the Lord more, only if you love the Lord more, will you lose your life to stand for him. Joseph finally came to that point. He realized enough was enough. He could not be a secret disciple any longer. And so he gives us the example of denying self, picking up your cross, and following Jesus. And what about you? Would you lose your life for the sake of Christ? In so doing, he gives you new life. He gives you eternal life. But this is the ultimate test of discipleship. Mark 8, 38 Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Are we not once again living in an adulterous and shameful, sinful generation? But do not be ashamed of the gospel. Your fear may not go away. You just need to fear God more. And love God more. And we know that we're in a stronger position because we benefit from the knowledge, contrary Joseph, that Jesus has risen from the dead. He already has conquered sin and Satan and death. And he will come again to make all things right. This is all we need to trust in. First Peter 4.19 says, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. That's what God wants us to do. That's all we got to do. Do what is right, stand for the truth, and trust him. That's it. Our lives are in his hands. That might mean we might lose our lives, but there's still no better place to be than in his hands. If courage still flees from you, then just look to Christ. Spend more time looking to Christ and see his courage because he stared down that fear on the cross while entrusting himself to him who judges faithfully, 1 Peter 2.23. God will judge. He'll set all things right. You're not going to worry about a thing. But you need to trust him and take courage in this. Well, so far we've seen two positive responses to the cross of Christ. Obviously, responses to emulate. Now let's take a look at two negative responses to the cross. Obviously, responses you want to avoid. Number three, the response of curiosity. The response of curiosity. Look at verse 44. This will be a brief point, but look at the response of Pilate to the death of Jesus. Verse 44. It says, Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time, and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion... He granted the body to Joseph. All throughout the trial of Jesus, Pilate was curious. He was inquisitive and intrigued because he had never met someone like Jesus before. The Bible also says he actually became fearful, witnessing Christ's majestic peace and authority. But his curiosity never morphed into faith. For even though Pilate was convinced that Jesus was innocent, he still handed him over to an unjust death. As much as he was intrigued by Jesus, when 
the pressure came from the Jews, he had a choice to make. Preserve his own life and power and position and prestige or preserve the life of Jesus. And for him, that was an easy choice. He wasn't going to lose everything he had accomplished for the sake of this Jesus guy, no matter how special he might be. So whatever conscience he had left was squashed as he handed Jesus over to an unjust death. Pilate's curiosity, though, continues while Jesus is on the cross. Specifically, he is curious to discover Jesus has died so quickly. Jesus intrigues him even in death. Death on a cross could take several days, but Jesus lasted just six hours. Now, as we learned before, this is because his life was not taken from him. He was giving up his life on his own terms. Nonetheless, Pilate wanted confirmation. So he summons the centurion. Remember that guy from last week? Centurion comes. And here, here is profound testimony that Jesus truly died on the cross. Here's a Roman centurion who had seen countless hundreds of deaths. And he testifies, no, he's really dead. He's, he's really dead. This is why, after all, centurions were put in charge of crucifixions, because lesser soldiers were known to take bribes, but you needed a trustworthy soldier to account that these men were truly dead. This is actually really the main point of this passage, but we're saving that for next week. But Pilate, at this point, Pilate no longer cared. He relinquished the body of Jesus to Joseph, which just shows he didn't really believe Jesus was some rebel But Pilate also stopped short of believing in Jesus. His curiosity only took him so far, certainly stopping well short of believing in Jesus. No, he wasn't going to lose anything on account of Jesus, no matter how special he might be. And we find that this response is typical of many today as well. For many people, Jesus, he's a curious figure to them. They they believe he was real. Some might even believe in him. You can find people like this in the church. Jesus intrigues them. He gives them a sense of wonder, like Pilate. But when push comes to shove, when that mob forms demanding the life of Jesus, they are the first to wave the white flag, to totally give in and give it all up. Jesus might be intriguing, but they're not going to suffer for him. They're not going to lose their job for him. They're not going to lose life and limb for him. And so they end up denying him, one way or the other. But Jesus himself said, such are not worthy disciples. Matthew 10, 38, 39, Jesus said, he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. He who has lost his life for my sake will find it. If you're so desperate to save this life and the things that go with it, go ahead, save it but you risk losing the next life because in forsaking Jesus, you forsake the only means to new life. Beware such a response. If you're here today and you only view Christ with this curiosity, you've stopped short of faith, of submitting yourself, bowing the knee to him, call you to repent, call you to lift that curiosity to real faith. Don't dance around the edges. Either he's Lord or he's not. Make up your mind. But then follow him because he is. Serve him. Live for him. Lay down your life for him. And he'll give you back new life. Well, we'll finish with number four. Lastly, the response of cowardice. 
the response of cowardice. Verse 46 and 47, finish the passage. Joseph brought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. Well, after being granted the the request, Joseph took down the body of Jesus, but he was not alone. According to John's gospel, Joseph was joined by the one other member of the Sanhedrin who had believed in Jesus. His name was Nicodemus. Nicodemus shows up again. He brought with him a hundred pounds of spices and myrrh and aloes. The Jews did not embalm the dead like the Egyptians, but they would wrap them in linen cloth filled with spices to combat the odor of decomposition. So together, these two men took down the body of Jesus, quickly washed the blood from it, wrapped him in a linen cloth with some spices. They were working against the clock because Jesus had to be entombed before sundown. They didn't have time to fully prepare Christ's body. They're just a quick job, which is why later we find the women showing up Sunday morning. They're going to finish that job of encasing him with the cloth and the spices. And John's gospel confirms this. Let me read for you John 19, 41, 42. It says, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Therefore, because it was the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, They laid Jesus there, speaking of Joseph and Nicodemus. According to Matthew, this was actually Joseph's own tomb. This was his burial place. And since sundown was approaching, they didn't have time to transport the body of Jesus somewhere far. They didn't have time to arrange for his burial somewhere else. They were out of time. But Joseph's burial place happened to be like right over there. So he said, let's just put him in my own tomb, my own unused tomb, brand new. Now, when you hear that, an unused tomb, it's kind of weird. Like, did they reuse tombs? Yes, they did. Yes, they did. Typically, the deceased would be placed in a sealed tomb, hewn out of rock in the side of a hill. They'd roll a stone in front of that tomb. We'll see all that next week and more. Keep the, the stench in, keep the animals out. You guys know the drill. The body would then be left to fully decompose until only the bones were left, at which point they'd collect the bones, place them in an ossuary, like a little box, and keep them, and the tomb would then be reused. Joseph, being rich, he, he bought that tomb. He surely planned to be the first person to use that tomb. It was his, never used, brand new. But of necessity, he gave that honor to Jesus. And unbeknownst to him, once again, around the cross of Christ, Scripture was fulfilled. Isaiah 53, verse 9, it says, His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Now at this point, you might wonder, what part of this is cowardly? Because I said the fourth response to avoid is a response of cowardice. It still seems like Joseph and Nicodemus are being pretty courageous here, and they are. This fourth response does not come from them. It does not come from anyone in the text. It comes from those who are glaringly absent from this whole text, namely the 11 other disciples. These men, no longer counting Judas Iscariot, 
had been glued to Jesus for the better part of three years. They stuck by his side through it all. But in his final hour, when he could have used their support the most, that they bail. They run. They flee. They deny him. As Jesus is arrested, their self-preservation instincts kick in, and they just go into hiding. Even though that night, all of them, not just Peter, they all claimed they would die for Jesus. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so they fled. We've studied the failure of the disciples before, but here finally is the result. Most notably, they were absent from the cross of Christ when Jesus could have used them the most. The only exception is the Apostle John who shows up for a brief time to take care of Mary. But it should have been the disciples, all of them, watching Jesus on the cross. It should have been the disciples who went before Pilate to ask for his body. It should have been the disciples to take his body down and prepare it for burial. But they're not there. It's left to the women, left to Joseph. What happened? Well, fear happened. Cowardice happened. The the weakness of the flesh happened. And it's a response many Christians can fall into today. And to be clear, the 11, they were real believers at this point. They were real. They believed in Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God. But as we know, this means they were hit harder by disillusionment and confusion when Jesus died because their eyes were likewise closed to the plan. They just didn't get it. But even still, even still, even if they didn't have it figured out, like the women, they should have still been there. They should have stuck by his side and showed their commitment and courage through his death. And so theirs, sadly, is a negative response to learn from. And this same thing can happen to many true believers today. True believers. Some lack courage, and when that push comes to shove, they don't outright deny the Lord. They still believe in him, that he's still their savior, but they get afraid and they just don't stand up when they should. They let others push them aside and silence them. And in so doing, their witness is thwarted. They they put a, a covering over the light of Christ, and so it doesn't shine. Have you ever done this? Have you ever not spoken up when you know you should have? It was a time to speak. It was a time to say something, but you didn't. Maybe you didn't even really run away, but you just just didn't say anything. I think at all times we have because the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. Thankfully, there is encouragement here, namely that God, God knows our weaknesses and he is merciful even to all of us disciples who are cowardly. And no one here is better than the 11. As you recall, these 11 disciples, though, they were fully restored by the Lord and used even greater works than these. God gave them boldness through the Spirit so that next time they would stand and the next time they did stand, even unto death. And you likewise, if you know Christ, you have that same Spirit. You have all you need to stand for Christ. So stand. If you've fallen short, if your witness has fallen silent, seek the Lord's forgiveness. He will instantly restore you. And then pray for boldness. It's a prayer. He will answer. Pray for that boldness. Like Jesus said to his disciples before, don't fear them. Don't fear them who can kill the body. That's all they can do. But fear God and trust God. Let the cross of Christ embolden you to share Jesus with the lost and dying world without fear. It's their only hope. It's this world's, this nation's only hope. This world, sadly, 
is changing. Our historic nation, which once championed religious liberty, is changing. Days of fear are upon us. What are you going to do about it? How will you respond? How will you respond to the gospel in a world like this? How will you respond to the cross of Christ in a world like this? With curiosity, yet ultimately cowardice, or with commitment and courage? Seek the Lord for strength. Place your faith, your trust, your hope in him. And then when the time comes, stand. Leave with Psalm 56, 3 through 4. David, in a time of fear, what does he pray? He said, Lord, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God, I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? Let's make that our prayer. Lord, we come before you this morning continually saddened by the changing tide of our nation and the world. We've seen it coming. We know it's part of your plan. You're still sovereign over all the nations, including ours, doing things according to your will as you see fit. Yet it saddens us and and concerns us because we know dark days are coming. And there's just fear, an atmosphere of fear we, we will be forced to live in. Yet, Lord, we need not fear. What can mere man do to us? Kill us? Send us to heaven? Lord, give us a greater fear of you and your holy name and give us a greater love of you, the God who saved us through Christ, the only hope for a lost and dying world. Lord, what love you showed to give your son to such a world that hated you. You gave your son to to die in our place, to live for us, to die for us, to rise for us, that we might be redeemed from our sin, through which we likewise once hated you. Thank you for the cross, Lord. We remember what was done for us. And give us the boldness and the power through the Spirit to not be ashamed of that cross and that message. It's foolishness to the world. They will hate us for it. May we we not be ashamed. Give us the courage and the commitment, the devotion we need to stand when the time comes. We may not be able to change things. We'll do our part. It's, It's in your hands. But may we just do our part, safe in your hands, taking a stand and representing Christ to the world for as many days as you give us. Give us courage as we depart and lift up your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.